Good evening, everybody. I hope you're well. Ontario is lovely these days. We have enjoyed it immensely. It's definitely not the first time we've lived here. I uh, lived here, right? Been here. Uh, and I must say, I think every time we've come, we've seen a little bit of snow spitting. Uh, so, wow, how beautiful the weather has been. I've just enjoyed it. I, I must say that we are very undeserving of your hospitality at the Prophet's Chamber. Is that what you call it, the Prophet's Chamber? What a lovely, lovely place, and you're to be commended for rolling out the red carpet the way you do. I'm thinking about extending our visit, <laughs> uh, maybe six or eight weeks, I don't know. Uh, it's so nice. You can come and visit. We'll have a good time of fellowship, but seriously, what a lovely, lovely gesture, and my wife Debbie and I thank you. Thank you very, very much. Very nice. Uh, well, let me say that uh, Gospel Mission of South America, no doubt, is, is somewhat new to many of you, although the mission itself is approaching its 100th birthday in 2023. Our founder came to know the Lord as his Savior when he was 38 years old. And between the age of 38 and the age of 45, he got involved in ministry in two ministries in particular. One of those was with a team of men in his church uh, in New Jersey. They had a ministry in Sandy Hook, New York, preaching the gospel to soldiers in a military base there. And the other ministry was related to his background in insurance sales. He was asked to be the treasure for the Bolivian Indian Mission. And the Lord began to work in Mr. Strong's heart. And at the age of 45, he made a survey trip to the country of Bolivia. And uh, while he was in Bolivia for several months, he visited many of the stations the missionaries were working in. And he was a bit distraught because he didn't feel that he fit in anywhere there. And he was riding the train from Bolivia. Bolivia is a landlocked nation. And he was traveling out to Chile to a city called Arica, where he would take the steamer back to New York City. And when he came in view of Arica, Arica, Chile, he says that he prayed and he said, Lord, I find no place in Bolivia for me. I have three days left. Might you have something for me in Chile? And so uh, he took his interpreter and they boarded another train. They went to the next town north, which is the city of Tagna. Today it belongs to Peru. Back then it belonged to Chile. And as him and his companion were walking around, they walked in front of an army barracks. And the light came on and he asked his interpreter to help him and they found out the person who was in charge and they requested an opportunity to have a meeting the, fi the following day. And perhaps to their surprise, the meeting was granted and the next day they uh, were before the soldiers of the barracks and they preached the gospel to the group of men. And when he left to take his steamer back to New York City, he left with the conviction that God would have him return to Chile to preach the gospel to Chilean soldiers. And so not even a year later, he would set sail, followed by his wife, his 10-year-old daughter, and his 14-year-old son, and they would return to Chile, and the soldiers and gospel mission was born. And so it was their objective to take the word of God to soldiers throughout the length of the country of Chile. If you can picture Chile, I'm embarrassed to say, I, I honestly don't know how long Chile is, but I'm going to guess around 4,000 miles long. 
and probably on the average 70 miles wide. So it's a very long country. Involves a lot of travel north and south. And Mr. Strong traveled north to south and south to north and everything in between and gave out tens of thousands of Bible, uh, Bible portions and New Testaments. Uh, along came the 19, late 20s, early 30s, and there became a burden for reaching out to the Mapuche Indians in the southern region of Chile. And so missionaries were sent into the Andean region where the Mapuches were primarily living, and they began church planting. And we became, from that point, uh, soldiers and gospel mission of South America. From soldiers and gospel mission to soldiers and gospel mission of South America. And later in 1960, when Mr. Strong went home to be with the Lord, by the way, when he went home to be with the Lord, he had just given out his last tract. And I read recently again that the letter that his son wrote about his father's home going. He was in southern Chile. He lifted his foot to climb on the train and collapsed. And before he hit the ground, he was in heaven. He was 82 years old. And so uh, when Mr. Strong went to heaven, the leaders of the mission determined to turn the military ministry over to the Gideons and make their primary emphasis exclusively church planting. And so we became the gospel mission of South America. We left the, we left the soldiers high and dry. No, we really didn't do that. And even to this day, you could meet elderly soldiers who remember William Strong Sr. and were touched by his life. His two children, who were 10 and 14 when they arrived in Chile, both went on to serve the Lord their entire lives. Uh, his daughter died in Chile. His son retired when he was 91 years old. Uh, and tremendous heritage of what God has done in that country. Well, along came the 1960s. And in the late 60s, some of you, I know by looking at you, that you'll remember that South America looked like it was going to be engulfed in communism. And Chile democratically elected a president by the name of Salvador Allende. And he, had a, he was a communist. And it was said that he had an objective of kicking out missionaries, all missionaries from the land of Chile. And so our leaders wisely sent a team to Argentina and a team to Uruguay so that there would be something prepared when the missionaries in Chile were forced to leave. If you know history, you know that a man by the name of Pinochet orchestrated a coup and Chile was saved from communism and the missionaries never had to leave. But the gospel mission of South America uh, began to work in Argentina and Uruguay as a result of that. It was in 1990 that my wife and I arrived in the country of Peru with a different organization, actually. We had full knowledge of Gospel Mission of South America, but we spent a year there first, and then we joined the GMSA in 1991, had the privilege of serving in two church planting ministries, the last one for 18 and a half years, about 100 miles southwest of the city of Buenos Aires. And that's the ministry that, by God's grace, we had the privilege of turning over into national hands a year and a half ago on uh, June 1st, May 31st, I guess, of last year and came to Fort Lauderdale to continue our ministry here. Debbie and I have four children. Our oldest daughter is married and she has our two granddaughters sequestered in Pennsylvania. We have to go all the way to Pennsylvania to see them. Uh, we have a son and his wife, number two, they're in Greenville, South Carolina. And our uh, daughter who follows is in Argentina. Uh, after she graduated from college, she went back to Argentina and she teaches English there. 
And then our youngest son is at Harvest Christian Academy on the island of Guam, which is a ministry of Harvest Baptist Church, and he teaches in their Christian school. So that's a little bit about us. I want to talk to you tonight about the profile of an empowered servant. And as we think back over the history of the GMSA, there's a person in our history who many of us uh, who are missionaries today with GMSA had the privilege of knowing. His name was George Black. He was the, the second general director of the mission from 1957 until 1979. He followed Mr. Strong as general director. And uh, Mr. Black uh, was saved at the age of 29. And he shares his testimony, and I quote, he says, in 1936, I began to read God's word, starting with St. John. I soon came under strong conviction of sin as my, as my life at that time was dishonoring to God, my parents, and myself. The Holy Spirit applied the word to my heart and conscience, and in the summer of 36, I gratefully accepted as my personal Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That fall at a young people's missionary rally, my Savior became my Lord, and I dedicated my life to Him and volunteered to go where He would send me. Desiring to witness to others of the joy I had found in Christ and yet not knowing how, I was led to take a correspondence course in personal evangelism in the Philadelphia School of the Bible. This resulted in the desire for further study of the Word, and in 1937 I enrolled in PSOB Day School. Through a friend I heard of God's wonderful working in the land of Chile and of the open door there for preaching the gospel, and I became intensely interested. I made application to the Soldiers and Gospel Mission of South America, and step by step the Lord led until the last paper was approved, and he who ruleth the nations overruled and made it possible for me to preach the gospel in Chile. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 As I look out over this group, I see all kinds of children. I'm so glad for that. And I hope you kids will realize that tonight I am talking to you too. And I hope that you've listened to Mr. Strong's testimony and will listen to the rest of it. Because tonight we are planting seeds. And we're going to pray that your moms and dads and your pastor and your Sunday school teachers will water the seeds that are being planted. Because there's no greater opportunity, no greater privilege, no greater blessing in life than to serve the Lord Jesus Christ no matter the cost wherever he may take you. In the case of Mr. Black, it was to the country of Chile. And on November 30th of 1940, at the age of 33, Mr. Black set sail for Chile to begin what would be a 69-year missionary career. Now, you do the math, will you? What's 69 plus 33? Anybody care to say 102. He died on the field at age 102. Within two years, Miss Letty Pudney arrived from BC, Canada. Yay for Canada. And on December 31st, 1943, George and Letty were married in southern Chile. Eight months later, Mrs. Black fell ill with spinal meningitis. The high fever damaged her auditory nerves and left her severely deaf. This is how we knew her. They wrote in an update 
Letty has also made real progress. The buzzing in the head still continues, some days worse than others. She can hear voices of those carrying on conversations around the table, but cannot distinguish any words unless spoken by the person sitting to her left. And Mr. Black writes, Our testimony is that God is faithful. We know that the promise he gave of perfecting that which concerneth us still holds true, and we have no doubt but that God will heal completely in his own time. Even better, pardon me, even better than the healing of the body is the spiritual blessing which the Lord has given so that we can praise him in the midst of difficulties. Meningitis teaches you to live a day at a time. We belong to the company of the hallelujah hearts. Praise the Lord. And all the people said, Amen. Well, again, Mrs. Black would fall ill. She fell ill in this time with diphtheria. And she again fought a long battle to regain her strength. And Mr. Black once wrote, I think Letty's most difficult trial was the desire to be in the thick of things for Christ and not to be able to be there because of deafness and lack of balance. Beloved, they had a home filled with hand railings. Every room had hand railings so Mrs. Black could walk and not uh, have trouble with her balance. She lived her entire career in missions that way. And he goes on, he goes on to say, and I'll have to find my spot. Yes, he says he wrote, he wrote that despite her limitations, she always carried her share of the work, always thought of others, maintained a consistent, vital relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. She was the ideal missionary wife. Now I say this, their belief that God would heal Letty completely in his time came true on May 14, 1998, when after 55 years of missionary service, God called her home to heaven from Copiapo, northern Chile. She was 92 years old when Mr. Black said goodbye for now to his beloved helpmeet, and he pressed on in northern Chile. And one month shy of 102 years old, having lived alone until the very end of his life, Mr. Black, too, was called home from Chile by his Lord. And imagine this. After 23 years as general director of the mission, not including all the previous years, he spent the next 30 years with Letty by his side for her last 20 years doing church planting in northern Chile. And beloved, three churches are the fruit of that investment that didn't even begin until he was 72 years old. And so I see very few of you that we could sign off on the dotted line here tonight. Well, that's not what we're about. This is a unique case. But let me say this. And by the way, you could be turning to Romans 1.1. These servants of God were steadfast and unmovable, just like 1 Corinthians 15.58 says. By the grace of God, they were always abounding in the work of the Lord. By the way, they never could have children. But they abounded in the work of the Lord. They were steadfast and they were unmovable by the grace of God. But this was not because of tenacity or stamina. This was because of personal enslavement to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This was because of the abiding conviction of God's call. This was because of the unwavering separation to the gospel of God. These were the things that moved them. These are the things that characterize an empowered servant of God. And beloved, nothing has, nothing has changed. These are still the things that characterize an empowered servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the reasons that the Apostle Paul would say in Romans 1, 14 and 15, I am dead or I am ready to preach the gospel. This is why he would say in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is me. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. This is why he would say in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. This is why he would say in Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. This is why he would say in Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And this is why he could say in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. The only difference between you and the Apostle Paul and me and the Apostle Paul are a little more than 2,000 years. Our Lord is the same Lord. The mandate is the same mandate. So consider with me tonight the selfless life of a divinely empowered servant. And mom and dad, I give you the challenge tonight. You who have those little treasures sitting nearby, would you consider surrendering your child to the Savior for a life of service? Would you consider doing that? So think with me about the selfless life of a divinely empowered servant. And we're looking at Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Just that one verse, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, of God. That's all we want to see. And we see, first of all, that he's, a submitted, he's submitted to the Savior. He's submitted to the Savior. You notice that Paul introduces himself not, first of all, as an apostle, but first of all, as a what? As a servant. A servant of Jesus Christ. A bond slave utterly surrendered to the authority of Christ his Lord, completely yielded for duty. And the word emphasizes subservience and insignificance rather than honor, though without doubt the Apostle Paul considered it a great honor to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to Wiest, it was the most abject, servile term used by the Greeks to denote a slave. A slave was said to be one bound to his master and cords so strong that only death could break them. It was one who served his master to the disregard of his own interests. One whose will was swallowed up in the will of his master. That was the Apostle Paul. He was a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may remember in Romans 4.1 he has to be considered a minister of Christ. It's a little bit different word, the word minister. Literally translated, it would be an under rower. And well, what was an under rower? An under-rower was the lowest level of rowers who did their grueling, dangerous, and demeaning work in the belly of a ship at high sea. They were the ones down there that were rowing. Those were the under-rowers. They were considered to be the lowest of the lowest slaves. 
And the Apostle Paul, he didn't seek recognition or acclaim. He wasn't looking for notoriety. He didn't have any interest in position. He wasn't expecting honor or privilege. He was pleased simply to be an under rower, to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life was swallowed by the will of Christ. He was content to be counted as the lowest of the lowest. And beloved, such enslavement to Christ is so basic to Christian service. So basic to Christian service and so inseparable from a vital and vibrant daily walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Utter surrender to His authority and and Lordship is absolutely unnegotiable if a person will face the rigors of ministry with conviction and joy as George and Letty Black did so many years ago. Do you remember Acts chapter 5 when the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin for preaching the Lord Jesus Christ? And in verses 40 to 42, the Bible says that when they had beaten them, they commended them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so you see the rigor that accompanied the ministry And you see the joy that they exercise because of the privilege of slaves of suffering for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, that's not just courage and tenacity. No one has that much courage and tenacity. That's the result of being a bond slave, utterly surrendered to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, completely yielded for full duty, and despite the consequences empowered to continue preaching without pause. That's the kind of servants that God continues to seek out. I think missions is often romanticized today. And I think that there are those who naively assume that they've, they've crossed the divide from self to slave, and yet they've never been objectively put to the test. And because I don't know you, I can't say that no one here has ever been put to the test because it's very possible that there are some here who have suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. I wouldn't know. But I will say that by and large in North America, we know very little about what it means to suffer for the gospel, to suffer to preach the gospel. And you know, I would say it's one thing to step on a plane and do a short-term mission. It's quite another to hit the purchase button and get only a one-way ticket. It's one thing to absorb the sights and sounds and the smells of a foreign country for a brief time. It's quite another to accept them as the new norm for years to come. If you glean nothing else from this message tonight, I hope you learn something about how to pray for the missionaries that you know and love and support. It could be that the culture that a missionary romanticizes has become the source of his endless irritation and frustration. Listen, even to the point of feeling hatred... Imagine their driving habits in third world countries, terrible customer service, long lines, tax evasion, they seek to draw you in, lying constantly, lateness, bureaucracy, it all grates on you. And it becomes a part of the culture shock that all, if not, or most, if not all missionaries will will work through if they stay on the field. 
And the language that a person thought to learn fast may come with difficulty and discouragement. And there will be feelings that I'm never going to get this language. I'll never be able to talk. I'll never be able to have a conversation. And there are those who will have, a fall, have the false idea that the whole city is waiting for their arrival. And people will say things like, we love the people of this city. They don't even know them. Those are naive statements. And they have the idea that these people are just waiting for them to get there and take the gospel, when in reality, they don't care. They don't care whether you come or not. Nobody's waiting. And when you get there, it's very likely that you'll be treated as an outsider. You'll be stared at by the very people you greet politely. And you might be laughed at because of your language skills, criticized, even despised for being North American. You may be taken advantage of financially, when you're a foreigner in some countries, you always get a special price. You may face the opposition of popular religion. You may be dismayed by the bureaucratic task of acquiring residency. You may be robbed. We know a missionary in Argentina who in 34 years was robbed 15 times. His wife was shot through the leg in a car while they wait, waited at a traffic light. One time they entered their home and he was held at bay while they beat his wife up so that he would give over their goods. We never saw anything like this. But these things are a reality for some. Some will be falsely accused. Some will be sued. Some will face sickness like Mrs. Black. Some will be misunderstood or misrepresented. These things are all normal. And on top of all this, do you know what happens? At home, parents grow old. Siblings and friends marry and have families. Birthdays and weddings and funerals will happen even though you're not there. Life just goes on. These are the realities that reveal whether one is surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether he's truly a bond slave or whether his will is his own. When the Apostle Paul identified himself as a bond slave in Romans 1.1, 1, 1, he had already been abundant in labors. He had already suffered stripes above measure, been imprisoned often, suffered death threats, beaten by his own countrymen, beaten with rods and stoned and shipwrecked various times. And he had traveled under dangerous circumstances. He had known perils of waters and robbers and of his own countrymen and perils by the heathen in the city and in the wilderness and perils in the sea. And among false brethren, he had suffered physical weariness and pain and watchings and hungerings and thirstings and fastings and coldness and nakedness. And in addition to that, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the ongoing concern for the churches. And yet he pressed on. He knew what he was talking about, didn't he? He pressed on. He was a servant. He was a slave. He was an under rower. He pressed on. And what's behind his selfless enslavement to Christ? The Old Testament equivalent to enslavement is found in Exodus 21, 5 through 6, and it answers the question. It says, and if the servant shall plainly say, and these are the key words, I love my master. I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. At the end of six years, he could go out free, or he could buy his way out to go free, but he couldn't take his family with him. He could only go himself. But the key here is he says, I love my master. Then his master shall bring him under the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or under the doorpost. 
And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. And he shall serve him forever. And so listen, and children, listen to the question. Because the question isn't so much if you'll be his bond slave, but do you love your master enough to go to the doorpost? That's the question. That's the real question right there. If you love your master enough to go to the doorpost, you'll do whatever he asks you to do. You'll do it joyfully, enthusiastically, faithfully, constantly. It's paradoxical, but it's the enslaved who are empowered. It's the enslaved who are empowered. And so the empowered gospel servant is submitted to the Savior, but he's not only submitted to the Savior, he's selected to the ministry. He's selected to the ministry. We're going to put our seatbelts on and move. Paul says that he was called to be an apostle. You know, if a person is not convinced that they've been called to the ministry, they should make no plans. Now, I want you to understand that in a general sense, every single one of us have been called to minister. We haven't all been called to vocational ministry or the church would be empty tonight. But we've all been called to minister. And there are principles in what I'm going to share that apply to all of us. To be called is to be welcomed or invited or appointed to a specific mission or office. Paul's call, you notice that it didn't begin with him. It wasn't of his own doing. He didn't manipulate his way into being an apostle. He didn't come forth to serve out of feelings of guilt. It wasn't something he selfishly pursued for power or wealth or fame. He wasn't just a noble volunteer to be admired, nor was he coerced by a guilt trip. None of these things can describe the Apostle Paul. He was divinely called by Christ himself to be his apostle. One sent on a mission on another's behalf. Beloved mother and father, do you think that God might call one of your children? Would you be willing to help their hearts be tender so that they hear the call when it comes? Would you be willing to do that? The Lord had told Ananias in Acts 9.15, He's a chosen vessel unto me. A call to ministry does not begin with the individual. It doesn't center around one's choice. It begins with God's choice concerning that individual. The Apostle Paul would say in 1 Timothy 1.12 very clearly that it was Christ who put him in the ministry. It wasn't that it was his choice. I read about an old, old country pastor who, after listening to a cocky young preacher, he approached him and he asked him, he said, was you sent or did you just went? Unfortunately, I think there are those that went who were never sent. Missionary dropout is so high, you can't help but wonder if some went who weren't sent. Paul had a settled conviction of having been called, and that's why he declared, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. And we know that the apostles were uniquely called by Christ. We know that their apostleship and calling were unique to them because of the criteria that was entailed. And we know that there's no apostolic succession because no one can fulfill that same criteria that's a historic, biblical criteria unique to their era. But today we appropriately use the term missionary. And that term uh, excludes confusion with apostolic authority but has the same basic meaning of being sent on a specific mission on behalf of another. And beloved, that's who missionaries are. 
So you may ask the question, how is one called or appointed to ministry today? Well, the answer isn't that complicated. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And I would apply that not just to pastors, I would apply it to missionaries as well. And there's two desires involved there. The first desire is a reaching after, and it speaks of, of external action. It speaks of initiative. It's that person who's always there to serve and always at work. He's not looking for any kind of notoriety or recognition. He just wants to serve. And the second desire is, is a strong inner selfless passion. It's the one who pursues ministry because he's motivated by a deep, abiding, sincere desire to serve Christ evidence of that passion is from God. And if you've truly been chosen and called, evidence can be objectively measured by your life being compared to the qualities of character and standards of conduct that are set forth in the rest of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. The apostles were uniquely called of Christ, Christ being physically present, them having witnessed personally his ministry in the church not yet born. But now it falls on the church. It falls on the church and its leaders to see and to observe and, and to separate in their midst those who God may be selecting to train them and mentor them and examine them and recognize them and verify the call of God on their lives to the body of Christ and the body of Christ to send them forth considering 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And so, young person, if Christ gives you a passion for full-time ministry, you pursue it. But you submit your passion and your character and your testimony to the scrutiny and to the verification and to the recognition of the leaders of your church because that's the biblical way. Be willing to be tried by serving under their leadership, to be tried by their correction and be tried by their aff affirmation. There is no greater thing than to serve the Lord. You know, where there's abiding conviction of God's call and where there's selfless surrender to his will, be assured that there will be a long life of ministry. So if you're not truly called, you can't expect to be empowered. The empowered gospel servant is submitted. He's selected and then finally, he separated. He separated. Notice what the Apostle Paul says at the end of the verse. He identifies himself as one separated under the gospel of God. We understand, we understand the word uh, separate. It means to divide from or, 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 or define away from something. It's to mark off boundaries or limits. But within the Greek work that is translated separate, we also get the word horizon, and that's a very interesting thing. And it gives us another nuance of meaning to the word separate. The theologian Barnhouse says it means to be taken from one horizon and placed in another so that your life revolves around a new and different axis. And you can think of it as standing when I was a kid, my uncle took us to Mount Eleanor in Washington State. I grew up in the state of Washington. And Mount Eleanor was a mountain of about 7,000 feet high on the Olympic mountain range out on the Olympic Peninsula. And we stood on Mount Eleanor right on the, literally on the peak. You could look to the west and you could see the Pacific Ocean. 
You could begin to rotate to the north and you could see Victoria, BC, that's a yay. You keep turning around, you see the Olympic Peninsula, you could see off to the Kitsap Peninsula, look east, you could see the Cascade Mountains, incredible. Then you go out to the state of Maine where my wife is from, over 3,000 miles from one end to the other, and there's a famous mountain called Mount Katahdin. Anybody ever heard of Mount Katahdin? Mount Katahdin is just about the same height as Mount Eleanor. And the strangest thing, when you stand on Mount Katahdin, you have the exact same view as you have from Mount Eleanor. Do you believe that? No, of course you don't. You don't have the same view at all. You have a completely different view, a completely different vantage point. They're two completely different horizons. They're totally unrelated, absolutely dissimilar. Because you can't see two horizons at once. Why? Because you can't be in two places at once. You can't be one person separated to two things. And Colossians 1 to 3 reminds us that we're dead to the old life and that we've been risen to new life in Christ. And therefore, it says, set your affections on things above, not on the things of earth. So you're either dead, you're dead, you're either dead in trespasses and sins or you're risen in Christ. That's a change of horizons. That's rotating on a new axis. That's having a new view. And you can't have two views at once. That's why Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 4, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. It's either one or the other. That's why Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. It's either one or the other. Ministry is so easily disrupt, disrupted by the affairs of this life because would-be servants attempt to divide themselves between two horizons. Beloved, if you're in, be all in. Because if you're not all in, you're not in at all. And just because you're in full-time ministry, that doesn't mean you're truly separated under the gospel of God. There are lots of distracted servants. Maybe I shouldn't even call, use the term servants. There's way, way too much concern in the day we live in about salary and retirement income and vacations and vehicles and gadgets and college funds and days off and businesses on the side and all of this kind of thing. And, and I'm not saying these things do ne never have their place. I'm not saying they're not important. But when they become a secondary horizon, they divide you and they hinder you in fulfilling your ministry. And that can happen to you even though you're not involved in vocational ministry. Do you know that the Lord has strategically placed every single person in this room somewhere to be a testimony to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? And that's an incredible thought because compared to the congregation, which may be perhaps 100 or 150 people, you may have two or three pastors and that implies the process of multiplication. And we so easily relegate everything to the vocational servants or ministers or pastors. God didn't intend it to be that way. And we get ourselves all wrapped up in the things of this world and the things of this life. And we forget that we've been strategically placed. And it seems way too obvious to even say it. But, beloved, if we're not fully separated under the, under the gospel of God, we can't possibly expect to be empowered for ministry. It doesn't matter whether you're teaching a Sunday school class or leading the music or taking up the offering. It's the same. So, three questions tonight. Children. You're a lovely group of children. Don't they act well in church? They do. 
parents, grandparents, this is the question, number one. Do you love your master enough to be enslaved to him forever, no strings attached, no conditions, nothing of as long as? Have you let him take you to the doorpost? Sometime, children, between now and your late teen years, he's going to want to take you to the doorpost. Will you let him do it? Mom and dad, if they don't understand that, tell them what that's all about. How many went to the doorpost at camp, made a commitment to Christ at summer camp? Anybody here did that besides my wife? There are several of you, right? Yeah. There are all kinds of venues. Sunday school. How many did that in Sunday school? Really committed their life to the Lord after they'd been saved in a Sunday school class. Anybody here like that? Yeah. Yeah. Some adults. Question number two. This is a general question for anyone. Are you pursuing ministry in practical ways, motivated by a genuine inward passion to serve Christ? Are you willing to have your character and testimony brought under the scrutiny of those who lead your church in order to confirm God's call and be recommended to the church, be sent by the church? That's the biblical way. That's the, that's the Antioch church way. And that's exciting. Acts chapter 13. Go back and read it. Question number three. Does it cause you pause when you consider the implications of a life truly separated under the gospel of God? The question is, are you all in? Say, well, I have no sense of God's call to leave where I'm at. Well, if you're all in, are you willing to say, he may take my children and use them? He may take them far away, or my grandchildren. Like I said, my grandkids are sequestered all the way out in Pennsylvania. I have to go all the way over there to see them. It doesn't seem fair, does it? Oh, may God speak to our hearts. Because these are the things that characterize the selfless life of a divinely empowered servant. Submitted to the Savior. He's selected to the ministry. And he's separated to the gospel. Heavenly Father, we have need of your working. We have need of the Spirit of God's working in our hearts. May you find our hearts tender tonight. Lord, we're never too old. And really, we're never too, too young to surrender to serve. And I can't think of any other reason that would define why you've left us here. It would have been so nice if we'd gotten saved and raptured. But you've left us here, and you've left us here to serve you. Father, help us to consider these things in Jesus' name.